0: That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all.
1: Hello, and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Chris Stem, thank you for tuning in. What do we have for you today? Today, we're going to the weird, right? I thought it was nice to mix it up. We've had a lot of kind of business and formal and all that. Uh, Let's get back to our roots and learn about something weird, which is the heart. So this week on the show, we are talking to Bill Shutt. Bill is a professor of biology At LIU Post and a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History. His newest book is called Pump A Natural History of the Heart. Just as interesting, his last book was called Cannibalism A Perfectly Natural History. And that book blew up. And I think this one will too. So we wanted to have Bill on to talk about random stuff like how big is a blue whale's heart and why are horseshoe crabs critical to science and why are we essentially killing them for our benefit? We talk about bats. We talk about COVID. We talk about did COVID come from bats or was it created in a lab? There's just all kinds of cool things that come out of this. Happy to have Bill on the show. Remember, you can reach out to us at at gmail.com. Also tell a friend if you like the show, if you like an episode, share it with them. And of course, you can support us at patreon.com slash smart people podcast. All right, short and simple. Let's turn it over to Bill as we talk about the heart and weird things in the world. And we highlight his new book called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Enjoy. I got your book here in front of me. It's called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Your last book was about cannibalism. We were talking about, gosh, that was what, four years or so ago, and you you still are uh, talking about it a lot. I wanted to start there with you are a zoologist. Uh, so first, for the uninformed like myself who think zoology, all we know is it has something to do with animals. Tell us about that. What is it like? What is being a zoologist? And then how do you make the transition into writing about kind of random topics like the heart and cannibalism?
2: Yeah, I I think I've been a zoologist since I was a little kid. I always studied animals. Back when I was a kid, you could have these exotic pets that that thankfully you can't, by law, have them anymore. I mean, I had a monkey when I was a kid and boa constrictors and pythons. And so I was always looking under rocks and collecting animals. And my idol when I was a kid was Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be a marine scientist. And uh, so my first year and a half of college, I was a marine science major. And I just thought, don't go so specific as an undergrad. And so I moved it over and and spread it out so that I was uh, studying, you know, animals across the board. And that became a real interest of mine, especially vertebrates. And got my master's degree at SUNY Geneseo, studied uh, squirrels and their ectoparasites. And then when I went to Cornell uh, for my PhD, my mentor there got his grant money looking at muscle physiology. He worked at the vet school. Now he was a he was a zoologist he was not a veterinarian um but his real love was studying bats and so when I got accepted there um, the the question became what was I going to study Myosin isoforms and horse muscles and and this was you know this was a big deal because this was the Cornell vet school so when something went wrong with a, a horse that was worth a million dollars you brought him there and they did a biopsy and then they looked for for problems um but it, it probably took me about five seconds to to figure out that I wanted to work on on bats. And so so zoologists, we have carved out smaller areas of, uh, of expertise. And so I decided among the 1500 or, or 1400 and change species of bats to study vampire bats. So that led me to write a lot of papers about about vampire bats, which eventually led me to to get an agent.
1: And that was the start of it? That was the start of it all?
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, from there it became what was going to go. How do you follow vampirism in the animal kingdom?
1: So I got to ask you, I mean, given like you say bats and I don't know what people thought of 20 years ago, but now I think of COVID. Have you thought a lot about that? Is that something you know a lot about this idea of the transmission? Because, look, I'm not going to go on conspiracy theorists and this is a podcast meant for intelligent people. But I got to say the fact that it went from a bat to a wombat or whatever to a person is far less likely, in my opinion, that it was created in a lab and it just got out. I'm curious on your sense of that.
2: So so my son, who studies viruses, I've asked them this question. So I said to him, what do you think of this conspiracy theory? And he said, there's absolutely, absolutely zero proof, nothing. But there's every bit of proof that this is a type of virus that we know about for a long time. Um, and and that this specific type of it is, you know, viruses are readily transmitted between species. This happens all the time, and we think this is, for example, how AIDS uh, w- was transmitted. And, and and when you talk about viruses from from swine flu, for example, that sort of thing. Yep. This is this happens all the time. What doesn't happen is is a virus escapes from a laboratory. So if you're going to weaponize, and this is the other thing that I'd heard was that if you were going to weaponize a virus, you wouldn't weaponize uh, this respiratory virus. You would not do it because it is less apt to mutate than any number of other types of viruses that you would probably be better off if you were trying to develop a weapon. So
1: mm.
2: his response, and, and, th- and this is, you know, at this point, this is certainly w- what I support, is that there's no evidence whatsoever that this was man-made or that it escaped from a lab. It probably was transmitted at wet markets markets where they bring in animals from the from the woods and or from wherever the, and there's no sanitary conditions and they're they're getting blood all over themselves they're picking up other animals um and that is far more likely the mode by which covid was transmitted possibly from a bat to another uh, a host and then to humans um but but yeah. the, you know to me uh, and and bats have a lot of they carry a lot of viruses anyway and 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 they have they're able to have what's known as a high viral load they they have a lot of they can they can they can um have a lot of viral particles virons um in their bodies but but not necessarily get sick because their immune systems are so jacked up they and other uh, and other animals are, can readily transmit these diseases to humans when the humans have this sort of unnatural contact with them. If you're collecting a thousand bats, slaughtering them in the market with no sanitary conditions, then you're asking for trouble. And I think that's what happened in Wuhan.
1: Yeah. I mean, makes sense. Look, I tend to, I mean, that's why we do this podcast. I follow the smart people and I follow the intelligence and that's what everybody says. And so I believe that uh, it just seems sketchy, but look, this is what I'm talking about. You have studied bats. Your son works with viruses like that's about as close to an answer as we're going to get, as I'm going to get. So I'll take it. Yeah. So, so I want to jump into the book all about the heart. Like you mentioned, it kind of talks, goes through the animal kingdom, but there's another underlying theme. And this is where I want to start. When and why did the heart become, as you call it in the book, the center of the soul?
2: Hmm. Uh, I, I think it was the ancient Egyptians. Uh, they did a tremendous amount of medicine. And, and one of the things that they did was, so they knew that living things moved and, and that if you stimulated them in a certain way, you could, you could get them to respond. And, and when they were looking at, at organs, they came to realize that the heart was the same thing. It moved and that it would respond to stimulus if you scared someone, uh, for example. And, and so they didn't really think much of the, of the brain at all. And so, what they did after they, after their people died, they, they preserved the heart, or they they kept it in. They either put it back into the body, or they put it into a into a jar. Because in the afterlife, this would be weighed against um, uh, the feather of Maat, and and, and Mott was sort of the goddess of, of, of a virtuous person, for example, like integrity, that sort of thing. So the heart had uh, this supreme uh, importance as the seat of what we might call the soul, uh, intelligence, and emotion. And so the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, when they picked up on on the Egyptian writings, they picked up a lot of Egyptian medicine. but they also picked up on this um, cardiocentric concept where the heart was responsible for for emotions and intellect, and it was really the the prime organ in the body. And when the Romans picked up on that, uh, they ran with it, and so they kept this concept of of cardiocentrism right, remain sort of this emotional center was because of the artists and the, the poets and the, and the dramatists who then picked up on this concept of, of cardiocentrism and they ran with it and they're still running with it. And, and so you got all of this terminology and all of these beliefs centered around how the heart is, uh, is the center of, of strong emotion, whether it be hate or, or, or love um, and the soul and, and all of these things in the, the follow-up to this was that people like Galen got a lot about the heart wrong in his anatomical studies. And that just stayed around for 1500 years for various and really slowed down and, and put a halt to any kind of uh, improvement in, in, in medicine for for over a thousand years. You know, that to me was the damaging thing. Not the, not the fact that, that people still think of the heart as, uh, you know, as the romantic seed of the body.
1: We actually do that for all types of, uh, different parts of our physiology. I was just listening to a thing about how at one point it was the stomach and then it was the heart. And then, to, you know, much more recently, it was the brain. Now it's going back to the stomach. Like we constantly move around uh, in this area.
2: At the same time, you had a surgeon like uh, like Galen and, and he was doing um, he was doing medical studies and, and doing experiments. Unfortunately, the Romans were not allowed to do experiments or uh, they were not allowed to dissect the body. So they had to use animals. So they made their proclamations about how things work based on, on non-humans. They got a lot of it wrong. They didn't have the equipment. They certainly didn't have the capability that, that we have. They you know, they believed that there were these four substances that you had to keep in balance, the four humors. Everything was based on that, blood being being one of them, which is why they bled people forever. What Galen did, I think, for his time was was, was okay. But the problem was is that Galen's works, and there were there was three million words that that were recovered that, that he and his, I guess, followers probably had written, when they were translated, they were translated, they weren't immediately translated into Latin. They were translated by two Syrian Christians. And and they and these guys, when they did their translation, they, they put enough of a of a of a Christian slant on it that it worked for the church. And so the church accepted this translation of Galen's work as being divinely inspired. So therefore, nobody could do anything. And like I said, a a tremendous amount of it was wrong. So that was perpetrated for 1,500 years. You had this, you know, you had the age of enlightenment and all of these things taking place and, and, and the age of discovery, not in the fields of medicine for the most part.
1: In your book, you cover a lot of different animals, the impact, the way the heart works. I'm curious, from your perspective, you went into this probably not knowing what to expect. You kind of mentioned that at the beginning of the interview. What was the most shocking thing or the most um, unexpected thing you came across?
2: Um, so I work at the Museum of Natural History. And so I, I have friends that, that work at the Royal Ontario Museum in, in, in Toronto. And they had been lucky enough several years ago nine blue whales died and three of them washed up and and these were whales that when they not a lot was known about their anatomy because they have a tendency to sink when they die uh, which is why they were not popular for whalers because they weren't the right whales the right whales were the whales that didn't sink that they could harpoon and then retrieve Uh, blue whales were fast and they sank Um, so they were sort of the wrong whales so not a lot was known about their anatomy but some of my friends they, they'd been asked for years, "What's the biggest heart in the world?" and and they'd respond, "Well, blue whale heart. How big is it? Uh, probably the size of a of, you know of a sedan." Oh, all right. And at a certain point, when and they get asked this over and over again, when these whales washed up, uh, they they decided um, to to see if they could preserve this heart to go get it. So that became this tremendous undertaking. It took five years. They went up there. They had to use big. In all sorts of equipment. Um, they had to get inside this thing. They had four people in there pushing it out be, between ribs. Um, and they were surprised by many things. One of them was it didn't look like a human heart. It looked like a the way it looked to me when I saw the pictures, it looked like a soup dumpling. In, in, so if you, if you lay the thing down, it would collapse. And this may have something to do with the fact that these things died so deeply that, that if you had a structure that was so, more solid like our heart, you'd have problems with pressure. But if it could collapse under the increasing pressure, that could be an adaptation for deep diving. But the thing that really got, so they preserved this thing. And, you know, I tell the story about the the five-year process of uh, of transporting it and then freezing it and then thawing it and then rinsing it. And I'm plugging all of these vessels with various sized you know, bottles of every size. And, um, and finally sending this thing to Germany where this, Semi-crazed scientists had made a, a a specialty out of plastinating living things. So if you've ever seen the exhibits of humans and they're sort of frozen in position or they're dribbling a basketball, yeah. Um, this is the guy who did the work on the on the whale heart. But what was a real surprise when we, when they finally got to look at this beautiful structure, com- completed and and display it, was how small it was compared to what they thought it would be. And so, you know, they expected it to be that this was the largest creature that ever lived on the planet, that the heart would be the same, it would be the largest heart of it. But comparatively speaking, it's not. Yeah, it's a big horse. It was like 350, 400 pounds. But but relatively speaking, it was small. So they had to, so they downsized it. They didn't put a sedan in the display. They put like a you know, smart car. You know, that was probably the thing that surprised me the most. But there was, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, ice fish that have uh, antifreeze in their veins or, or boa constrictors that when they eat a meal, their heart grows 40% large. It, it was It's difficult to pick out what was, you know, what was more intriguing to me.
0: This episode is brought to you by Hims. We don't want to admit it, but 52% of men over 40 experience some form of erectile dysfunction. But like many health problems, no one wants to talk about or take up hours of your day to deal with it. That's why you need to check out Hims. Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Hims offers an array of high-quality options, including pills or chews for ED, and serums, sprays, or oral options for hair loss. If prescribed... Your medication ships directly to you, for free and discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. No insurance is needed. Pay one low price for your treatments, online visits, ongoing shipments, and provider messaging. You can even manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims.com/smart. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash smart for your personalized treatment options. One last time, HIMS.com dot com slash smart. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com dot com slash twist for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscriptions plan. The
1: ice fish, though, tell us about the, the antifreeze and like, how do you discover, how is something like that discovered?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, so, so the fish, I think, was discovered in the early 1900s by fishermen, but no one really looked at it until more recently. And when you, they started to get more, um, uh, better techniques with analysis of things like blood, they found out that there was a substance in this, you know, they wondered how could this fish exist in this frozen water of the, you know, the, the Antarctic. And, and they found a substance that was, a, that was a, an antifreeze. It, it raises the temperature at which the blood will freeze. So they found an antifreeze substance in this, uh, in this fish. And so people were asking, well, how could that evolve? How, how, could, this, how could this happen? And, and when they looked at it, they said, well, this is probably a, a, a mutation that occurred millions of years ago. Because if you look at their blood, it's clear. How did that happen? Why don't they have you know they don't have hemoglobin? What? How, how do they not have this oxygen carrying substance and survive? So, so one of the things that that we think evolved was this antifreeze substance, and the and the other thing is is that cold water holds more oxygen, so they were already in a place where there was more oxygen in their surroundings. They also now they evolved. They have no scales, so they're able to get oxygen and and get rid of carbon dioxide, especially getting the oxygen through their skin. So and they wow. are... And they're not super active. They're sort of weight and and pounce predators. So all of these things worked out in favor of this creature that you're like, how could it exist in this area where there's, you know, where it's absolutely freezing and there's very few animals there.
1: Before we get into some more of the animals, I did want to ask, as you were going through this, really digging deep into the various animals, the differences, everything, like you said, from this fish to blue whales, what did you find were some of the biggest differences with the human heart? Like how, how do we compare structurally, anatomically, adaptively to the rest? Did you see any themes there?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a mammal heart. It's, it's a four chambered heart. It's really a double pump. The right side of the heart pumps blood that's returning from the body. That's oxygen depleted. And has a lot of waste products that it's gotten from, you know, from from various organs that drain into small veins, that drain into larger veins, that drain into your vena cava that carries this blood back to the right side. So here's this O2 depleted carbon dioxide filled waste product filled blood and the right ventricle then pumps that blood to the lungs where it picks up oxygen. This has got this capillary system that surrounds the the, the, res- the respiratory system at the level of the alveoli, the tiniest little bubbles at the end of your, you know, your bronchial tree. Um, and so this exchange takes place. The oxygen that you breathe in passes into the blood. The carbon dioxide in the blood passes into the alveoli and then you breathe it out. Now, the same thing is taking place with, with, with waste products and and, and, and and nutrition when the blood passes through the digestive tract. So here comes this blood now back from the lungs to the left side of the heart. It's full of oxygen. It's got nutrients in it that it's picked up on its trek through the digestive tract. The left side pumps, sends the blood out to the body to supply the body, and it's interconnected. So now you get to a capillary bed eventually. The blood gives up its nutrients, picks up, gives up its oxygen, picks up carbon dioxide, picks up waste, and then returns to the right side. So the whole thing starts again. It's really a double pump. A lot of animals don't necessarily need that. So we look at them and we go, well, look, this uh, these lizards have only three chambers. They've only got one ventricle. And there's some mixing of the deoxygenated and oxygenated blood. Oh, my God, they must be primitive. or That's so inefficient. See, that's the wrong way to look at it. You know, We look at our hearts and we go, this is the pinnacle. But this is the best. Works great for us, right? Well, so does a three-chambered heart work great for a, a lizard or for an amphibian. And so does a two-chambered heart work incredibly well for a fish. Uh, they're not overbuilt. It does the job that it evolved to do. So there there are major differences between animal hearts. Uh, and certainly when you go to the invertebrates, then all bets are off. There's all sorts of stuff that evolved uh, to circulate a fluid, to circulate and move nutri- nutrients around, or in some instances, oxygen, sometimes not. But they're all there's a lot of differences. You you can't expect though to take an insect like a moth and blow it up to Mothra and 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 have it exist because the systems that it has in it are not going to be efficient enough for something that large. So that that, that I was you know I was I was really depressed to find out that Mothra couldn't really live. <laughs> you know, but we need to really stop thinking about non-human organ systems as being somehow inferior. And it's, you know, we've been doing that for a long, long time. You know, when I was a kid, it was, whenever you saw Neanderthals, they were dragging their woman by the hair and they had a club and they were, yeah. and they were bent over. You know, now we realize they had a brain that was bigger than, than modern human brain. And, and that they were, they were portrayed as being bent over because the first fossils that were put together had serious arthritis. Uh, and now we know that they were very, very different than that and and certainly not huh. to be made fun of or, you know, poked at or, or, or joked about. And it's like that with a lot of things.
1: It's funny you say, now we know that. And one of the things I want you to know is, now you know that, yeah. and some of us are learning it. Okay, like, there you go. I just learned something else. I didn't know that about Neanderthals. Well, I, I guess that's we, what happens when you work at a museum.
2: <laughs> yeah, but, but also when but you have people like uh, like Mary Roach and, and Bill Bryson who are out there right. educating. You know, I, I, I don't care about jargon. I, I'm not trying to show off the fact that I know scientific terminology. And neither do these authors. We're trying to take... Sometimes complex issues and and educate people while keeping it entertaining and and telling stories that are maybe the more interesting story and and when you've got somebody interested, then going off on a tangent and and giving a lesson about something you know for me yep you know, I could say the word diffusion. As a as a process, and, and you, you might or might not know what I'm talking about. But when I say, you know, if you if if you you could demonstrate diffusion by going to your hall closet, and if you've got a, a whole bunch of junk in there, if if you poke little holes in the in the wall, some of it's going to come out, right? So it's going to follow the yeah. concentration gradient, just like if you have an alveolus, uh, in at the at the end of your bronchial tree that has carbon more carbon dioxide in it. Then there is in a tiny little vessel next to it, then it's going to move from a high concentration to a low concentration from the, from the lung to the circulatory system. And it's the same, you know, you're looking at a closet door with holes in it.
1: It's true. No, I was telling you before we started recording, those are some of my favorite books, some of my favorite authors. I just like the way it's written. You learn something at the end. I kind of view it as this podcast. I hope you get through, you enjoy it, you enjoy the conversation and you walk out with some knowledge, some better understanding. Yeah. Um, Last question because I mentioned it a few times. What the theme that I noticed in your book is exactly what you were just talking about, which is as we all know, we know evolution. We know what it is, we know why it happens. But it's like taking one of the most important uh, components, right, the heart, and showing how in different animals it serves a similar purpose differently.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of those that I've started to see the mirac- you know, how miraculous it is, is the, uh, the horseshoe crab. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the horseshoe crab and why we are really, uh, dangerous as it relates to the the life of the horseshoe crab, but how it serves us so well.
2: Yeah. Th- this was a fascinating, fascinating story that I, that I got my friend Leslie and I got to tell, but we started to do w- work on this, on this topic. And that was the fact that there's a substance in horseshoe crab blood that has been determined to be extremely important. And and the reason it is important is because there are little organelles inside or cells inside the the blood that contain a substance that causes clots when it comes into contact with certain types of bacteria. And these are bacteria that fall under this heading of endotoxins. Endotoxins are produced when bacteria are destroyed. So if you were going to sterilize some equipment, uh, surgical equipment, and it had bacteria on it, when you sterilize it and you burst apart that bacterial cell, it releases parts of its, of the cell. And these are structural components. It's not like they're storing toxin to use against their enemies. These are parts of the cell of the bacterial cell itself. And our body, when it comes into contact with these substances, treats it as a, as a toxic substance and mounts a serious immune response against it. Now, someone figured out that if you take this substance that the horseshoe crabs have and you can make a test out of it, then you could see a specific chemical response visually occur if this substance came into contact with endotoxin. So you would test drugs or you would test surgical equipment or medical devices or catheters. And so it became a a, a real lifesaver. Now, the problem is is that horseshoe crabs have been around for half a billion years. You know, you throw around the term um, living fossil. These are really living fossils. They've probably gone through the five major extinction events on this planet, and they're still around. And there are four different species, and three of them are endangered. Uh, but the one that we're using here is, on, is found on the, West coast, on, on, the, on the east coast of the United States primarily. And this has now become a major industry. Where there are where where these animals are collected, and they're usually collected before they they've made it and, and and lay eggs, toss them on the back of a boat, throw them in the back of a pickup truck, and and there'll be hundreds of these things, thousands of them. Bring them to these facilities. They'll hang them upside down. They'll stick um, syringes into them to drain their blood. When it stops draining, they pull the syringe out they put the horse, they, they by law have to put the horseshoe crab back where they got it from. Okay, well, maybe 30-40% of them die. When you put a horseshoe crab back that's had 30-40% of its blood drained, uh, it's asking for trouble. It's it, it's not going to be in good shape. So this has really been problematic. And I don't want to say that th- that they're not used for other purposes and that's not putting a major dent in their population because they've Fishermen have found out they chop these up and put them in their traps, especially the big ones and the, and the pregnant ones with the eggs, that they can use this as a bait to catch their eels and, and, and conches, which are, you know, big shelled animals. So they're in real serious, serious shape. So somebody came up with a neat idea of, of developing these tests without using actual horseshoe crab blood, without hanging these animals up. And this just started to take hold, and some major drug companies were, were, were starting to use it when COVID hit. Everything sort of got put on hold as these companies who needed this substance didn't want to be bothered with, uh, with, these, with these new techniques. So they went back to what had been working for 30 years, maybe more. Oh, wow. Yeah, so now it's, you know, it's problematic. But there are people out there who, yep. are, who are, are really concerned about the conservation of these animals and you know to me to be able to go in and and meet these guys and and get this whole story w- was pretty incredible.
1: As you say that I'm realizing something that many people already know but the importance of really understanding our surroundings. So for example when you were talking about studying three bats and dedicating a large portion of your time, energy, you know, background to it I'm going well, what's the why? Not because it's not interesting. That's not what I mean. I find this stuff fascinating. But because of resource intensity, I mean, time is the only thing you have. It's spent researching bats. The thing, though, is the more of everything we understand, we understand its linkages. I use the analogy often of when we tried to go to the moon, we didn't realize it was kind of going to lead to the Internet in one way. You know what I mean? There's just a lot of connectivity on this planet, and I think the horseshoe really exemplifies that
2: <laughs> like I said people who know me are gonna they're gonna be laughing when you get to this and you're sick because I, I feel I've felt that way for so long and and maybe in a slightly different way but that um the connections I mean even if you look at the human body and I taught human anatomy for for 20 years the the exact wrong way to do this to study for uh, human anatomy is to is to look at at these systems respiratory system circulatory system nervous system look at them as different chapters and that's the way the, the the texts are set up that way so i always tell my students this is not a course or this is not a science where you can you can study the circulatory system and then you take the test that it's done and then we'll move on to the respiratory system it'll be something completely different because they are all intertwined and there is this this connection that is everywhere in the sciences and and out there in the world and, and you know for me, that's just one example. So I studied three species of vampire bats, but I was able to tell stories about that related to mammal evolution, to biomechanics, how structures, anatomical structures work like machines, behavior, uh, performance. All of these things aren't intuitive when you're saying he studied vampire bats for 30 years. But when you go in and look at the things that, that you can take apart, because maybe someone hasn't done that, done that. Or and I've always talked about Convergent evolution, dolphins and sharks, same shape. They didn't come from a common ancestor. Why do they look like that? Because that works. Uh, You're going to be a fast predator.
1: And the other thing is one of the best definitions of creativity and or innovation I've ever heard is taking disparate thoughts and using that knowledge to create something new, right? It's Uh, We interviewed the guy who wrote Range, uh, Epstein, I think it was, and he talks about how when you're a generalist and you're accumulating various knowledge, different fields, you're practicing different things, it doesn't always look linear, but at the end, you oftentimes use those various experiences. Same thing. seems like it's happened in your career and seems like it happens everywhere. So, Bill, I wanted to first say thank you so much. Again, the book is called Pump, A Natural History of the Heart. Uh, It is coming out like now. For those interested in this stuff, you know, what I'd say is we scratch the surface. If you love the stories, the intrigue, the odd, it's full of it in this book. We will link to it as well. Uh, Is there anywhere else that people can find you, learn about you, see what you're up to as you keep writing these interesting things?
2: Yeah, um, BillShutt.com is my my website, but I also have a a Facebook page, Author, and I'm on Twitter as well, at Books. So it's pretty easy to, uh, to get a hold of me. And, and I, I love responding to people who, um, who have questions. I, I've done three um, TED-Ed videos, uh, two of them on cannibalism and, and one on how transfusions developed. You can look those up.
1: It's fantastic. It's also fascinating. Bill, I want to say again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it.
0: That was our interview with Bill Shutt. Hope you enjoyed. As a reminder, Bill's book, Pump, A natural history of the heart can be found wherever books are sold. So let's jump into the housekeeping items real quick. If you'd ever like to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or message us on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you enjoy the podcast, have been a long-time listener or even a short-time listener and want to help us out monetarily, you can do so by becoming a patron over at Patreon. So head over to patreon.com slash smartpeoplepodcast. And if you want to stay up to date with all things Smart People Podcast, head over to the website, smartpeoplepodcast.com, and sign up for the newsletter. And of course, if you're looking for free and easy ways to support the show, just tell a friend or family member, or head over to Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and leave us a rating or review. All right, that's it for us this week. Make sure you stay tuned, because we've got a lot of great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next episode.